This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening and welcome to the Australian Museum. My name is Sue Saxon and I'm a creative producer here at the AM. We're really excited tonight to have Dr Simon Longstaff speaking to us and I hope you've all really enjoyed the Spiders exhibition. It's only on for another week or so um, before it, it folds up. So if you haven't brought your children and would like to return, please do by the 16th. I'd like to call on our director and the CEO of the Australian Museum, Kim McKay, to introduce Dr Simon Longstaff tonight. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much, Sue, and thank you to Sue and the, the events team, the uh, programming team here at the Australian Museum who do such a terrific job. I'd like to start tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that they're gathered on. Please come on in. That we're gathered on tonight, the uh, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And it's really important that we do that at the Australian Museum because we are the custodians of one of the most significant Indigenous collections in the nation, about half of which is housed on site here at the museum and the other part of the collection is housed at our new off-site storage up at Castle Hill uh, in northwestern Sydney. So it really is an amazing collection and of course we also have an amazing Pacific collection at the museum as well. In fact, the finest in the world and it's one of our great goals here that we can eventually get that wonderful collection out on full public display. You know, we are very fortunate to have some wonderful speakers come through the museum. And uh, tonight we're very fortunate to hear from the wonderful Dr. Simon Longstaff. I have known Simon for many, many years because I've not only sought his counsel on occasion in the past, but also have worked with him as well. Uh, Simon and I were both involved in a wonderful project at National Geographic in the United States called the Genographic Project, which was the world's largest population genetic study and Simon was on the advisory board of that with me and really provided some fantastic guidance and advice as we worked with Indigenous communities across the world. Of course, Simon started his career up in Groot Island in the Northern Territory, and he's um, very proud of being able to maintain those kinship relationships that he established up there as a very young man, working with a BHP subsidiary, Gemco. Uh, he went on to study law, became a teacher in Tasmania and then ended up at Cambridge at uh, a member of Madeline College where of course he studied um, ethics. He became a uh, doctor of philosophy at Cambridge. He came back to be the first executive director of the Ethics Centre here in Sydney and of course has made a major impact. People say that uh, Simon has basically consulted with most CEOs in Australia at some point and it's because he gives such sage advice and insights but also is very challenging sometimes in uh, the questions he raises with us. We were having a chat earlier about you know what is it about ethics? You know we all have a framework I think that we reflect on ethics but Simon provokes that and really makes us think about things we've never really thought about in an ethical context before. He, uh, of course, has written this wonderful book for children, The Spider's Song, which is very appropriate. Tonight you get to see that spider's exhibition, and Sue, you're right, it's 
closing here on very soon after the school holidays, but I'm very pleased to say that we'll be touring spiders to North America, and it will tour there for the next five years. Um, one of the things you have to do in museums now in this state is look for ways to generate more income. So I'm very pleased to say that the Australian Museum's own created exhibitions are proving popular. We've already started touring Tyrannosaurs Meet the Family, an exhibition we did a few years ago, and that's already touring North America. So we've got to look for those new great sources of income, and I'm very proud of our team here and the incredible work they do. So, yes, your last chance to see spiders is coming up. Not a good one for the arachnophobes um, who've avoided it, but uh, it's, it's wonderful. And I'm going to give you a little insight to the future. We've got mammoths coming up later this year. Uh, it's out of the Field Museum in Chicago, that exhibition, but we're also bringing a woolly mammoth to Australia from Russia. It's the only intact woolly mammoth called Luba. And uh, it's a baby woolly mammoth, very cute. Very, um, very interesting creature. So let's hope she makes her way here safely. We're also about to open uh, the Westpac Long Gallery very soon, uh, which is the oldest museum gallery in the nation, built in 1850, and it will house the 200 treasures of the museum. So lots to see here in the future. It will open in October. But let's get on with the main show, because Simon, apart from writing The Spider's Song, this wonderful book for children, and I'm always amazed when people can write so intelligently for adults, yet that they can also communicate so well with children. Simon's new book, Everyday Ethics, just came out last weekend, uh, which answers modern-day ethical dilemmas in a very practical way. So Simon tonight is going to talk to us certainly about the spider's song, but also about ethics for children and also ethics in our daily lives. So please welcome the wonderful Simon Longstaff. Oh, you'll be pleased to know everybody I'm starting work now on the Mammoth's Ode, which will be <laughs> released here sometime in the future. <clears throat> Look, I'd like to begin also uh, with some acknowledgements. Um, also, uh, as you heard, I have kinship ties with the Anandliakwa people on Groot Island, which have been part of my life for over 40 years, so I'd like to pay my acknowledgement too to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects. Uh, I'd also like to thank Kim and Sue and all the people from the museum for for hosting us, but particularly tonight, sitting in the front row, uh, my wife Susie and my two children, Alex and Cass, uh, who are really the reason why this book exists. It was written when they were babies, uh, at a time when they were too young for me to read it to them because they would never have understood what it was about. And unfortunately, I overlooked the point where they reached an age where they could understand, and so it lay in a drawer for 20 years, really, and they only saw it first when it was finally published and they were in their 20s. And one other person I want to acknowledge who's not here tonight is Mark Vandergrint, who is the illustrator who I've worked with for many, many years, as you'll see, who brought to bear the vision for this book in a process which I hope to unpick a little bit when thinking about ethics, not just in the context of this story, but in general and how this relates to children. Now, this morning, um, as it happens in a, an extraordinary piece of serendipity, I was walking towards the bus when approaching me from afar was a mother with two children. One of the children was very young and in a pram and just being pushed along. But trotting at the heels of the mother was a, a young girl. She looked like she wasn't much older than someone in kindergarten. 
And as they approached and passed, I overheard a snippet of their conversation. And the mother was saying to the, the little girl, oh, if someone is bullying you, or if you think that they're bullying you, blah, 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 and then they disappeared into the distance. I thought, wow, you know, here's a mother with her children having a conversation about ethics. Uh, what is this thing she was trying to explain about what is bullying and how do you respond to it? And in fact, some people would have thought, well, maybe this child's too young really to understand. But uh, as the people here from, and we've got a group also from Primary Ethics here, uh, which teach ethics to, what is it, about 40,000 students every week in New South Wales state primary schools. As they know, and as we would tell you, uh, children have a capacity to reflect, seriously to reflect on ethical questions from a very young age. Easily done in kindergarten, but, but even younger than that. So the capacity for children to deal with ethical questions is, is there, but they have to traverse an ethical landscape. And I want to talk a bit about that landscape and how it relates to children within the context of children's fiction in general, and particularly uh, the kind of book that The Spider's tale, uh, Song is, which is effectively a modern fable or fairy tale, um, using a very old and ancient form for addressing ethical questions. Because you can think about teaching children how to reason better. Uh, you can think about how to give them a vocabulary for understanding different forms of ethical decision making. And I'll touch on some of those structures at the very end. But there's something else that you really need to do, I think, to engage children uh, if you're going to help them develop this capacity for living an examined life. Now, Mark Vandergreen and I, uh, the Dutch illustrator, trained as an animator, he and I have worked together for many years before we did this particular book. And we used to publish throughout the course of every year usually four articles and associated cartoons which sought to capture in images and a few words a range of ethical questions. And you can see some of them here. Hopefully they're more or less self-explanatory when you read the captions. Pokies. I should be limited. Politics. It goes back to that famous time when Sir Winston Churchill, after the fall of Singapore, stood before the House of Commons and said, I did not know, I was not told, I should have asked. And uh, you can see the should have asked one's got a few cobwebs in it in terms of modern politics. And we even used to venture into Christmas cards. And and the kind of whimsy you can get in, a, in an illustration and a tagline, an idea, uh, is something that you can play around with adults, certainly, and you can take very serious issues and you can make them accessible to people. But there is something that you have to reckon with when you're dealing uh, with the ethical domain and children, and that is that uh, there is a reality of evil that exists in the world. Now, any of you who are younger ones here now, perhaps a bit younger than I was expecting, a couple of these images are very stark, so if you're mum or dad and you're worried, you just might want to bear that in mind. But there's a range of things which our children encounter through the news, through conversation with their parents, which can be deeply disturbing. 
Uh, they can include mobile phones. That <laughs> no, they can include things like this. Um, what is our relationship to animals? Uh, how do we treat them? What is their status? What is a good life? What is a good death for an animal? They can be issues like this. Um, the aftermath of the violent conflicts which arise from war. And then there are these sorts of moments, which was a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph, which was taken by a journalist, a photojournalist, who was prepared to stand and wait for this vulture to get closer and closer and closer to the child, merely in order to have that extraordinary photograph. Now, you ask yourself a little about, well, what kind of person, what kind of decision are you making when you see how that child is responding to the imminent approach of something which will attack them and if it can, kill and eat them. I mean, that, that, the ethical domain of that, that's real. These things happen and we could have picked many different types of images, many different kinds of cases to think about in terms of the reality of evil. And children have never been, if you like, shielded completely from this. Uh, it's a bit like uh, the pain that we experience. You can see it as an evil or you can see it sometimes as a necessary and useful attribute where if you put your hand on a hot plate, you withdraw. Your body tells you to do that. And, and so for most of human history, um, adults and children have had to try and traverse the nature of this at the extreme area when ethical questions arise. Now, ethical questions, of course, um, as I sought to explore in, in, in this latest book, Everyday Ethics, are not all capital E ethical questions such as should there be a death penalty or is it appropriate to destroy embryos for stem cell research. There are ethical questions when you go to the supermarket and ask whether or not you will purchase the eggs from free range chooks or perhaps a slightly cheaper version that comes from caged birds. Uh, what you do on a day to day basis, every choice you make in a sense is what ethics is about because ethics is ultimately at least in the tradition in which I've worked, it is the, it's about the science, if you like, of choice. What ought one to do? The core question of ethics is just drawing our attention to the fact that every choice, every decision we make is capable of being the subject of reflection and that that capacity for us as human beings is there. But as I said before, just those three brief images indicated, it's not all... Um, that relatively easy question about eggs and things, although they can go quite deep, sometimes it is truly terrible. And so adults have been looking for ways to engage children with these questions, the large and the small, for millennia. And they've not just been thinking about it in terms of what you do for children, but even amongst our own age groups. Uh, the role that myth plays, the use of parables, uh, it's always been the case that story has been an incredibly powerful way to draw a person into an environment where they can begin merely not just to rationally contemplate an ethical situation, but actually bring their moral imagination to bear in an extent that they start to have an empathetic response. So one of the most powerful ways to begin thinking about ethics for children is in the world of once upon a time, the world of fantastic, fantasy or the fantastic. And we see these in fables that go back to people like Aesop. Uh, we see it in these extraordinary stories when you think about something like Hansel and Gretel. I mean, 
At one level, it sounds like a charming tale of two children who wander into the woods. They find a house made of gingerbread, they gobble it up and a nasty woman comes. But the subtext in these stories, of course, is very dark. Uh, the witch merely doesn't want to entertain herself with the company of the children. She wants to fatten them up and eat them. And the denouement of the story isn't one in which they escape, run back to their parents and say, I've just had an extraordinary adventure in a dark and dreadful place. What they do is they push her into the fire. Now, if you were to take that story and tell it with a purely realistic account of each of those steps, this would be a frightening and challenging thing for children to engage with. If, on the other hand, you set it in an unbelievable or barely believable setting, then very profound lessons can be approached in safety. Because even the darkest of stories can be told, well, it's not there, it's in the world of once upon a time. And we've seen this with a host of characters which have been picked up in children's tales in the past. Uh, it includes, of course, things like the wicked characters that you see in um, Snow White. Um, Pretty much all of them have got it. And of course, um, this depiction I find one of the most graphic ones for the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Again, you know, the idea of the wolf as this kind of spindly figure who wanders around in grandma's bonnets is not quite the sense of what it is that you're trying to get. This is a much stronger image of the, the person of Little Red Riding Hood versus the very significant menace that the the wolf represents. And you see fantasy and story being used, of course, not just in things which are terrifying, but also which become intellectually interesting. So uh, some of you may notice if you ever um, read The Spider's Song, and it's a book designed to be read aloud to children because it includes within it a series of rhymes, nonsense rhymes, which owe a lot to Lewis Carroll and, of course, uh, Jabberwocky. And I've even borrowed uh, one of his words, gimbal, which is set within there as a kind of conscious homage to, to Lewis Carroll there. And of course the wonderful tale of um, Alice in Wonderland, um, where issues to do with the status of kings, the nature of authority, uh, the role of nonsense versus reason, uh, the exercise of arbitrary power, all of these things are being written at a level that an adult can understand but in a context which is designed to be just a good old-fashioned tale for a child, which they may or may not approach the deeper meaning as they grow older. And that's really, for me, what lies inside the crafting of the spider's song. The truth is that when I first started to write it those 20-plus years ago, I wasn't engaged in a conscious, active, didactic writing. I wasn't thinking, what can I teach my children about ethics in the modern world, I was actually just wanting to tell an entertaining story. Uh, I put in at the time what I thought were a few interesting philosophical jokes which involved contradictions and things which never made it into the published work. They were entertaining for me but not for an editor who was, now out they go. I had a very harsh editor who um, left no, showed no mercy if you like when coming to do this. Uh, but. What I did do is that I began to understand much more clearly what potential significance lay for children in terms of their latter engagement with these ethical questions and for their parents in this form of fable telling. 
And that's one of the key things I think that's worth reflecting upon is that teaching ethics to children is essentially about the parents or the teacher, the adult themselves, having an, a heightened ethical sensibility and a kind of maturity in their understanding of the underlying concepts sufficient for them actually to be able to translate it into a simpler language which resonates just at the level of story. And if you were ever to look inside the material um, that primary ethics uses for teaching, are any of you teaching um, for primary ethics? Yeah, okay, well, you, you probably know that the first bit that you'll see when the lessons come is, actually, it's not a particularly long, but it's a, it's a much deeper exploration of some of the philosophical concepts which lie at the heart of the lessons. And what it tries to do is to draw out the fact that not every judgment is going to be based on consequences, that sometimes there are going to be issues to do with duty or the impact of decisions on one's character, so a kind of a virtues-based approach. And what you're looking for in those additional notes that the teacher has and the instructions there is to equip the adult so that they themselves are better able then to relate the deeper lessons to the child. So the spider's song has, if you like, a thing like that. If you read it as an adult, hopefully what you will pick up are the various notes about ethical issues, about character, about the environment, about a whole lot of different things, which I'll explain a bit more as we go through. But that if the child is reading it, they will just simply hear a good story. And as their consciousness awakens to some of these things, you'll be better equipped to be able to address the issues with them. So the spider's song itself, as I say, is a fable. Uh, it begins with a, a story about Bartholomew uh, Tiberius Finn, Bart Finn, who's improbably famous because he's discovered as a baby surviving a failed experiment that a group of eccentric naturalist parents, Kim, they, they, they go off to the wilds of Africa to try and prove their theory that a lion's roar is worse than its bite. And uh, this is shown to be, as a matter of empirical fact, wrong. And all that remains is the father's hat and this little baby that's desired, discovered by a group of passing Maasai. But as you might expect, um, Bart Finn, this, this young fellow here who inherits a fortune, um, is suspicious of nature. He actually has lost his parents to it. Uh, he thinks himself essentially brighter than any person and certainly better equipped to make decisions than the natural world itself. And so his essential trope in life as he grows older and starts to use his wealth is that whatever nature creates, he can do better than that. And so he creates this world um, which he buries. And these are pages that have never been published, some of these. These are from early galleys. So I'm showing you bits of the book that you won't find in the book. There are some insight in terms of how the character and the story developed. You can see him back there. He looks like a pretty innocent kind of guy. He's got an open face. You can, I don't know if you can see him just here with his little eyes and things. Group of inst he creates all these tools. He uses science and technology in order to lock out. And that's the last bit of the sky that's seen in this cavernous world which he creates below. Now there's the first question, you know, that is obviously going to be asked throughout the book. Is humanity so arrogant to think that through our intellect alone we are sufficiently capable to better what nature might do? Are we are its, its masters? Or are we going to be its servants? What's going to happen? What does one think about these sorts of things? He goes on and he creates wonderful characters. And again, you can see that this, this figure here, when you look at him later, and I, I think I've got some pictures of what he becomes, uh, you'll see he's a completely different looking character. And one of the ethical challenges that Mark and I had in terms of creating this book 
was to try and work out how do you tell this kind of story, not just in words, but also in images. To what extent do you make this figure something which captures the, the kind of the wear and tear of the exercise of human will in the face of all natural forces? What might that do to you? How do you change as a result of it? As opposed to showing him as a perpetually innocent looking face. And how do you do it on a boundary so that you don't actually make this into a frightening person? Um, this is how he becomes in the, in the book. That is a, an illustration taken in the book. I don't know if you can see that. It's a very different kind of feeling to it as you go through. This is a slightly darker world. And in fact, one of the things we spend a lot of time dealing with in telling this story is shaping the, the palette, the actual use of colours in the way that the book unfolds. And you'll notice if you're looking at it from this kind of external perspective that as the book goes on, the palette becomes darker and darker and darker as the various elements in this story begin to unfold. Because this world that he creates is not completely perfect, free from any interference from nature. It eventually has two intruders, one a small spider uh, who he captures and studies and thinks it's a thing to be measured and taken apart. And then eventually a little girl called Poppy Patterson um, who falls through, a bit like Alice falling down into this world and completely disturbs him and makes him want to be, in a sense, in connection with her. But I have to say that Poppy is not a particularly pleasant child. Um, if any of you read the book, you know that she's precious. She comes from a world in which her father is a property developer who ironically has knocked down every tree on the one hill that stands above where this man's created his world and in a development which I think is called Forest Hills or something like that. So, you know, there's elements of irony that go through this. There was an early illustration of Poppy. Um, that's before she became who she is in the book. You can see the only thing that we have of real note is that she is always called by her dad and thinks of herself as a princess and she has sparkly tights, or she was at that point in the illustration. That's her later on in an early draft of what Poppy becomes. And then, uh, we'll come to Poppy later, this is a, an illustration of the spider, the first time we see it, itself trying to escape from a natural phenomenon, because I don't know if you know this, but some wasps have got this rather terrible habit. They'll, they won't kill a spider, they'll actually stun it and lay their eggs inside it. And then the eggs of the wasp grow and eat their way out from inside the spider. So it takes some sympathy when you're over there thinking about the fate of some particular spiders. But that's a sort of another thing to start thinking about. You know, well, what do you think about the natural world and what it does if you're with children? Early sketches for some of this, this world there. I won't flick through these. And you can see how the, the, it's getting darker and the changing face of the boffin. At one point, the, dolphin try, the boffin tries to, in a sense, bribe a little girl with presents um, by creating a flying horse, which has got fleshy wings, which are, when you touch them, they're warm. This is a slightly demonic looking version of the horse. Again, it never appeared in the book. This was just a very early sketch. And what we had to do in terms of starting to think, how do you actually set this up as a way that children can relate to, is balance all of these competing things to do with the story, to do with the illustrations, to do with the colours, to do with the extent to which you were sort of putting it down people's throats as opposed to letting them discover these things and imagine these. Again, not, that may actually be in it. Uh, there are two little characters called oval woozers, which we put in called Dint and Bottom. Um, Dint and Bottom are constantly there and there 
with the boffin as companions, which are another way to try and alleviate some of the darker aspects of the story. And this is um, important because at the very end of the story, uh, you'll find there's a kind of a, a reconciliation in which when everything has wound down, and the point about this is that the, the, this story about humans imposing their will and sustaining another world at, at odds with nature is that the only way it can be done is by this boffin ensuring that every single creature has within it a little drop of his own blood. And so as the effort of sustaining this world grinds him down, so his world eventually becomes dark and dormant. And at the very end, without giving away too much, it's the decision by the spider, the representative of nature itself, which allows a return to a new kind of life. And that's, at the moment, it's the last part of the book when, against every expectation, a final reconciliation occurs. Now, the reason for that, and going through that sort of brief narrative, not telling you the story too much, not reading parts of it, but showing some of the pictures, is I think that there's a, a kind of an, an, an analogy here with teaching ethics to children in, in general about making the lessons accessible, not just, as I say, at the level of reason, but particularly I think it's important that you engage the moral imagination of children. So again, going back to something like the curriculum in primary ethics, there is fable that is used. There are other little stories which are taken. There's things that people like Robert Lippmann have developed so that you're engaging people in, a, in, in a imagination. Um, and often when you see in the world at large terrible things happening, it's because there's a failure of moral imagination amongst the adult population which makes it impossible for them, or perhaps something they're not willing to do, to put themselves into the shoes of the other person, to try and imagine what it must truly be like to be in those circumstances. And instead we remain isolated, sometime imprisoned within an entirely rational worldview, which allows us to excuse ourselves about what we might actually feel if we're in those circumstances. Now, if you go back to someone like Plato, of course, he says that reason ultimately must triumph. But what people forget is that when Plato uses the analogy of the chariot, he also insists on the importance of the two horses, which are feeling and will. And it's the combination of feeling, of will and of reason, which allow a person absolutely to, to engage in proper levels of ethical reflection. The other thing that you need to do when you're thinking about children and educating them is particularly to have a concern for what we call ethical literacy. Now, I was going to put up these nine symbols um, to give you a clue of what I'm talking about. What we've discovered in our work over the last almost 30 years is that if you take 100 Australians and ask them the question, well, what should we do? Around about 50% will immediately respond by asking, well, then what's going to happen? Tell me what are the likely consequences of the choices we might make because I want to choose that which has got the best outcome. And we often hear this it's, uh, in its philosophical forms. It's around things like utilitarianism, where it's the greatest good for the greatest number or maximising pleasure and minimising pain. But the extraordinary thing is that only 50% of people think that's the question that ought to be asked. On average, around 30% of people say that's not the appropriate question. What I need to know is, what is my duty? 
Have I made a promise? Are we bound by a promise? Is there an obligation which constrains what we might or might not do? And they feel bound to consider duty irrespective of consequences. And then a third group, roughly 18%, and you can see it doesn't all add up to 100, uh, they think that those first two questions are completely illegitimate. It's not about consequences and it's not about duties. The only relevant consideration is what it is that this decision will do if made to their being, to who they are or to what their organisation is. And these are people who think that we are like <coughs> wax or clay and that every decision we make leads an impression and progressively if you tell one lie after another lie after another lie, you're shaped by this until progressively you become someone in the form of a liar. Now you see the different ways of relating and thinking um, actually in the life we live in community. The debate, for example, about the destructive use of embryos for stem cell research will often see two sides pitted against each other who talk past each other. So those who are in favour will often say, well, we must do this because the consequences of this will be so extraordinarily good. It'll be so positive. Think of the illnesses that will be cured, the diseases that will be prevented. Ranged against them, often for religious reasons, will be those who think that those consequentialist arguments have no validity at all, that it's about one's duty, uh, one's duty to obey the commandments of God or whatever it happens to be, and that's what they say. And so we see these conversations going backwards and forwards. Now, we've worked on this now, and I won't unpick all of these things here, but each of these represents a subset of that. So. Uh, the ethics of care are feminist traditions in here. Those who believe in virtual character are in there. Relativists are up in here. We've got various things and we found that there's basically a typology which has nine different parts. And we've developed a diagnostic tool, which we haven't yet released, but we've been refining and validating, which basically allows any person to find out what is their ethical valency, to find out where they are in this. Now, one of the things we want to do in the development of our work in terms of education is also to start to introduce more and more children to this concept of ethical literacy. And that's one of the things that books, books like The Spider Song, should also be aiming to do. That it should be informed, I think, by an understanding of some of these deeper philosophical questions and how they're expressed in terms of human life. So the, sto the story itself I commend you to just as a good fairy tale. I may not have done it justice because I've been trying to give you some of the kind of the philosophical parts that lie behind it and some of the thoughts that led to its creation. Uh, I think if you like poetry, if you like uh, an interesting tale, and particularly if you like, if you've got a sense for the empathy, because ultimately in this story, the boffin, who is the ostensible villain, he is broken down by the cruelty, not of his world, but of the little girl who wants constantly to see him as a monster when in fact all he is is an old man. And there are important lessons in that. Just briefly, moving beyond the, um, the spider song, the book that was released on Sunday or Saturday, uh, Everyday Ethics, is a completely different beast. Uh, that's really written for grown-ups. Um, it begins with a, a chapter which is as good a job as I can do to write 
uh, a definitive, if you like, account of what ethics is actually about. And you'll find within that the distinction between morality and ethics, between values and principles, and how they all fit together. And then having set that foundation, including briefly looking at some of the core ethical theories, like those that I mentioned a moment ago, what it does is that it then provides a kind of an A to Z of ethical issues. And it really does traverse pretty broad territory, all the way from abortion and end-of-life decisions through to mobile phone etiquette. Last but not least, um, people do find um, themselves with very serious ethical questions. Sometimes they can disable you, sometimes they're just an irritation. We have now for 28 years provided the world's only free national helpline, um, the Ethical Service, and we get cabinet ministers and journalists and lawyers and doctors and um, farmers and policemen, all sorts of people who sometimes just need a safe place to be able to explore uh, ethical questions about what they should do, often when they're in not so much conflicts of interest but conflicts of duty. And I just commend that to you or to the others within the community that you might think might need that, um, should it be something that arises at work or in, at home, personal life or whatever. So thank you very much for coming along tonight. Um, I suppose if I was to summarise uh, the main point of tonight is that I think we are living at an absolutely central time. I think it's very rare for people to live at a time when so much is now changing. Um, the effects of technology, what it's going to do to work, the source of meaning in life, some of the geopolitical issues. We are living at an extraordinary time. And if we're going to be able to navigate the choices we must make, there's not, they're not going to stop and wait for us. We need to build the capacity as a community to, to deal with the ethical dimension, to, to make choices which are grounded, solidly grounded, not just in unthinking custom and practice that's done because everybody's done it that way or because it's always been done, but because we consciously reflect on issues of what is good and what is right. And we're only going to be able to sustain ourselves and make the most of the opportunity and to limit it as, great as we might the risks. If this capacity in ethics is embedded not just in old silver-haired men like me, but throughout the community and particularly amongst younger people. And my advice is that one of the most powerful ways to prepare people to do that is through literature and the power of story. So I hope um, that's something, whether it's something like The Spider Song or some of these other books that are around that you, you use with children and, and sit them on your knee, particularly when you can sit them on your knee or beside them and read the story aloud and look inside the pictures and see if you can find here the whorepont that's hiding and, and make it that, that collective, that engaged experience rather than the more distant things that people might do if it's simply a digital experience online. On that note, I'll finish. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.